This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In 1954, the film On the Waterfront was released to massive critical acclaim and audience success. The film was based on a series of articles that appeared in the old New York Sun in 1948 and that won the Pulitzer Prize in 1949. And the movie itself won eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director. At the time, and through the years, On the Waterfront has been a real magnet for controversy. In particular, it's been seen by many as being screenwriter Bud Schulberg and director Ilya Kazan's justification for their friendly testimony before the House Un-American Activities Committee. But controversy aside, it's inarguable that the film presented a world that very few had seen before, the world of New York and New Jersey's longshoremen. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are taking a look at that world and at the movie it spawned with James Fisher. Fisher is a professor of theology at Fordham, and he's the author of the forthcoming book The Irish Waterfront and the Soul of the Port from Cornell University Press. That book looks at the culture of the waterfront, the stories that inspired the movie, and the controversies surrounding it. James Fisher joined me in the studio earlier this week. I started our conversation by asking him to tell me about the world that the New York City dock workers lived in. Particularly on the west side of Manhattan, the world was an Irish-American world that came into being really in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, particularly when the Chelsea Piers were created uh, down in the Chelsea neighborhood um, between 1900 and 1910. The Port of New York was the world's busiest port, and uh, the Chelsea Piers were the most lucrative and busiest and um, most uh, sort of tumultuous uh, epicenter of, of the port. We've got the fattest piers and the fattest harbor in the world. Everything moves in and out. We take our cut. Why shouldn't we? If we can get it, we're entitled to it. As many as tens of thousands of Irish Americans either emigrated to the city to work uh, the port or moved from other sections of Manhattan in the first decade of the 20th century. And it created what I call the Irish waterfront, basically Chelsea at its heart, and then to its south, Greenwich Village, and then to its north, um, the neighborhood of Hell's Kitchen. And then across the river in Hudson County, New Jersey, there was a comparable landscape along the waterfront in the cities of Jersey City, Hoboken, and Bayonne. So there's kind of like these two different political jurisdictions facing each other. They're in two different states, but it's one port, and uh, it makes up really the busiest harbor in the world. And the places where people live and work are sort of isolated from the rest of the city, right? Yeah, and those, see, it's so it's just the opposite of today, where all the waterfront has been reclaimed for residence, residential and recreation uses. In those days, the waterfronts on both sides of the river and in Brooklyn, they were totally estranged from the communities to which they were attached because there were all these freight rail terminals and rail yards and a whole array of uh, very daunting uh, infrastructure, you might say, that prevented the average citizen from getting near the waterfront. And so in part, that kind of enabled this wholly separate world to emerge really since the late 19th century, a waterfront world which really had a kind of a, a, a life and a culture and a rule of its own could be very, very violent and um, at the same time very communal too because people lived very close to where they worked and um, it just generated all kinds of institutions like bars and churches and things which are really strictly waterfront entities and kind of separate from the rest of the community. So the people on the waterfront had a different culture. It was a separate culture that was linked in many ways to the broader kind of ethnic And, of course, Roman Catholic uh, subcultures of the New York City and New Jersey areas. But, yes, it was was distinctly different, too. If I lived 
on the waterfront, if I worked on the waterfront, what was my life likely to be like? Uh, your life as a working in the waterfront as a longshoreman, it just it, it actually depended. And that's become a very big controversy. Um, for those people who've seen the movie On the Waterfront, depicts very dramatically a scene which we call a shape-up. That is, the way that longshoremen were historically chosen for work involved uh, forming a semicircle around a hiring boss. And then they would either be chosen or not chosen for a shift of work, which might involve only four hours of work. All right, Lofton, Malloy, Hendricks, Kodowski, Westerfield. Now it's kind of the historic scandal of the waterfront because as time went by, more and more people concluded that that was not a very humane way of hiring workers. Well, it turns out there were a lot of different ways people were hired, and a lot of waterfront workers, particularly the Irish on the west side of Manhattan, who kind of saw themselves as kind of the aristocrats or the, you know, the nobility of the waterfront having been here the longest – they tended to work in what they called regular gangs. That is, they could count on work and they knew who they'd be working with. But for others, for example, when they need, when shippers needed extra hands to load and unload a particularly large cargo of goods, they would hire people through the so-called shape-up system. Hey, who do you see to get a day's pay around? Give me a break, Mike. I got a couple of cans. It created a very inequitable and very kind of hierarchical system of labor uh, in the port, which was very susceptible to all kinds of corruption involving things like kickbacks, that is bribing, hiring bosses, and um, becoming indebted to loan sharks if you wanted to work and things of that kind. You're three weeks behind on the last 25, but I'm willing to take a chance. Some chance at 10% a week, and if we don't borrow, we don't work. Waterfront work, by its nature, was casual. Ships came and they left. It wasn't like working in a factory where things were being produced all the time in shifts. It depended on the cyclical and seasonal processes of uh, global shipping. In a way, what it did, of course, is involved these very locally oriented folks in a kind of a global economy, ironically, really from the very early, you know, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, which, of course, was hard to understand. But what it did is it made the cycles of work very erratic and very irregular, and it made family life very insecure. It increased uh, the likelihood that people become indebted to loan sharks. It created issues involving alcoholism because people went to the saloons to try to find work and hear about work. And so it really did generate a kind of um, culture of work, which is really different than what Americans that were coming to expect in the 20th century about a kind of a regular you know, lifestyle involving, involving their job. It was very irregular, very erratic, and very unreliable. And it created all kinds of social challenges as a result of that. What kinds of social challenges? Well, I mean, for example, um, I mentioned the things like the loan sharking and kickbacks, problems with the union. They were represented by um, the International Longshoremen's Association, which had been here in the port since the early 20th century. The ILA was really not uh, – it was not a democratic union, and it re really wasn't run by its own leadership. It was dominated, in fact, by employers. So you had a situation which is considered highly irregular in which individuals who operated stevedoring companies, for example, that hired men to load and unloaded ships. They had inordinate power over the union itself. They may indeed even have run the union. So what it did, of course, it left the uh, rank-and-file dock workers beholden to individuals who didn't necessarily have, of course, their own the, the rank-and-file uh, economic interests at heart. So that was one example of a highly sort of irregular feature of life in the court. What do you want to do? Come on, let's go get a ball. Oh, wait a minute. Is this all you do, just take it like this? Huh? Well, what about your union? 
No other union in the country would stand for a thing like that. The waterfront's tougher, Father. Like it ain't part of America. So you have the union. What other sort of institutions or touch points are important in people's lives? There was a relationship between the Catholic Church, the churches, the parishes on the west side and in Jersey City and Hoboken, and the union and the political establishment, a Democratic Party political establishment, all dominated by the Irish. The Irish ran the church. They ran the port. They ran the union. And they had enormous power. Of course, you know, the Irish had taken over Tammany Hall in the 1870s and didn't let go until the late 1940s. Uh, the Irish, of course, had experienced a lot of hardship as immigrants in the middle and late 19th century. Their opportunities for advancement in many, many fields had been limited. There was one reliable sliver, and it really was a sliver of the West Side and of Hudson County. They ruled the waterfront. And so they made it their own, and they created a kind of a solidarity of interest between the church and the union and the political establishment. And it created a very strongly kind of unified system. These different institutions, which might have separate interests, in fact, kind of work together as part of a kind of a well-oiled political, economic, religious machine, which um, dominated the life uh, in the port, in the, really in the first half of the 20th century. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're revisiting the film On the Waterfront and the world of New York longshoremen and their families that the movie portrays. My guest on the show today is James Fisher. Fisher's a professor of theology at Fordham, and he is the author of a forthcoming book about the world of the waterfront. I mentioned earlier that the film On the Waterfront is based on a series of newspaper articles. I asked Fisher to tell me more about that. In 1948, Malcolm Johnson was an investigative reporter for the old New York Sun, which was actually on the verge of extinction. In fact, because the paper was dwindling its readership, they took a chance on authorizing this very controversial series of articles in which Malcolm Johnson basically exploded the code of silence that had really covered the waterfront for at least 50 years, and that is he began to really investigate a series of unsolved murders of which there were dozens. For example, water, uh, dock workers were disappearing, getting thrown in the river and never, uh, never being accounted for. He began to investigate the connections between the local union leadership, the political organizations, organized crime, all of which he argued, of course, worked to the great detriment of the average rank-and-file longshoremen. And so when Malcolm Johnson discovered in late 1948 the Port of New York was what he called an outlaw frontier or a jungle. There was a kind of a lawless subculture that existed right in the heart of the world's kind of global metropolis. And so it was an amazingly rich series of articles, incredibly scandalous and really richly detailed with all kinds of mug shots of these scary-looking gangsters who no one had ever heard of up to that time. I thought they was going to talk to him. That's the idea. I thought they was going to talk to him and get him to dummy up. Maybe get him an argument. He wasn't a bad kid, that Joey. A canary. Maybe he could sing, but he couldn't fly. <laughs> now, the key thing about these stories was Malcolm Johnson enlisted the aid of a young Jesuit named John Corridan, who worked at the Xavier Labor School on West 16th Street in Chelsea in Manhattan. And John Corridan was um, assigned to the waterfront apostolate by his, his superior, a man named Philip Carey, a Jesuit. And Corridan really took this cause on as a kind of a crusade. And it was right around the time that Malcolm Johnson was investigating these stories that Father Corridan concluded that he really needed to step up and really expose this very, very unjust 
system that prevailed. And that began a kind of a series of collaborations that Corden enjoyed for the next five years. But this series of articles, Crime on the Waterfront, was an enormous sensation. It won a Pulitzer Prize for its author, Malcolm Johnson, and it convinced this Jesuit, John Corden, that collaborating with outsiders was the only way he was going to draw attention to conditions in the port. Because Johnson's articles were not just a journalistic sensation. They attracted enormous public attention. They attracted political attention. And they began to generate demands for change and reform in, for example, the hiring system in the port. And so they had enormous repercussions, won him a Pulitzer Prize, and then in turn uh, attracted the attention of movie makers and all manner of other kinds of magazine uh, authors and book authors and editors and publishers. So tell me about John Corden. What, what was his story before he started doing all this? He was this amazing character. You know, Phil Carey, who is kind of the uh, sort of the hero in some ways of the book Behind the Scenes and this whole story, Philip Carey was a slightly older Jesuit. Now, they both attended the Jesuits' Regis High School in the 1920s. Both became Jesuits. Um, Carey was more of the traditional kind of uh, very avuncular kind of a pastoral figure. And so Philip Carey had had a very unpleasant experience on the waterfront in the early 1940s. He tried to help a group of men organize their own union. He was really devastated by the response in which he was threatened with destruction. And so he kind of laid off for about five years. When this younger Jesuit came along in 1946 – Father Phil Carey said to him, John Corden, who was known as Pete because there were so many Jesuits named John, he was called Pete. And in those days, there were hundreds and hundreds of Jesuits in New York. This Father Pete Corden was turned loose to pursue this kind of waterfront apostolate. I don't think anybody understood at the time, though, how intensively this younger man would take up this cause. Come back to your church, Father! Boys! This is my church. And he began to create these relationships with journalists and reformers and filmmakers. And he basically blew the lid off the waterfront. And the result was all kinds of public hearings. These gangsters were you know, dragged in from, from off the street and required to uh, account for themselves for the first time ever because these guys had counted on the fact that the local judiciary would, would back them, the church would back them, the political establishment would back them, and no one would ever ask these embarrassing questions about the very dangerous and kind of unsavory world over which they presided. Well, finally now, in the late 40s, early 50s, the whole thing blows open, and um, this Father Corridan is almost entirely responsible for um, really opening up, you might say, or shining the light of publicity on on this really uh, major part of the geography of the New York area, which had been wholly neglected for decades. We've sort of been talking about all these fights to stop all these problems, but it might be useful to just talk about what the situation was for people who lived on the waterfront and worked there. What were the problems? What was what was the situation? The whole problem with the waterfront, of course, depends entirely on your point of view. And I'll mention the film now on the waterfront. The reason I want to mention that is because there's so much misunderstanding about this movie. The film is told entirely from the perspective of Father Corden. And if you see the film, you will see how this Jesuit priest perceived the issues on the waterfront and what he thought needed to be done. And what needed to be done was to have rank-and-file dock workers step up and speak out and talk about the injustices they'd experienced. The problem was the rank-and-file often had a different perspective. They didn't necessarily like the union leadership. They didn't like a lot of things about uh, the system which they faced. But 
they were extremely suspicious of anyone from the outside telling them what they needed to do or what needed to be changed. And they also tended to like, for example, one feature of waterfront work, the hourly pay scale was relatively high. It was not a bad living if you got regular work. There was really conflicting perspectives on really what were the ills of the waterfront. But from the Jesuits' perspective, it was a scandal because these Catholics that ran the Union were not in any way in tune with the modern social teachings of the Catholic Church, which said unions should be democratic, men should have enjoy the dignity of labor, and it was like a God-given right. I'm just a potato eater, but um, isn't it simple as one, two, three? One. The working conditions are bad. Two, they're bad because the mob does the hiring. And three, the only way we can break the mob is to stop letting them get away with murder. What the rank and file basically said was, we will trade the dignity of labor for high hourly wages. And I think the Jesuits and other Catholics found that hard to understand. Like, why would workers basically say, we'll accept an undignified, violent workplace in return for high hourly wages. Why? Well, here's why. In many cases, dock workers had criminal records. In many cases, in almost all cases, they had very little formal education. They had very little opportunity for work in other fields. This was a field that they were not going to relinquish. They didn't want to give up their position in these jobs, and they were very suspicious of any kind of outside agency because what the Jesuits did was help create a new agency called the Waterfront Commission, which basically uh, became a licensing and registration agency after 1953, which was partly intent on preventing men with criminal records from working on uh, on the piers of the, in the Port of New York. Well, that would have eliminated a very large number of dock workers. So what I'm suggesting is that as is always the case with reform campaigns, there's a lot of different perspectives, you know, and a lot of people have different points of view. Some of the longshoremen really idolized this Jesuit. Most didn't. Most of them felt, leave us alone. We'll run our union and our lives the way we choose to, and we'll keep our neighborhoods intact the way we choose. Now, you know, that would have been considered a short-sighted view. Um, but on the other hand, you know, from the perspective of people who were living from week to week, um, it did reflect their sense of economic insecurity, and I think it's, it's understandable from that perspective. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a foreign correspondent talks about her home in West Harlem. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with James Fisher. One of the coolest things about the movie is the way that they sort of create the physical world of these dock workers and waterfront residents. How did they create that world for the film and also where? They wanted to shoot this film on the west side of Manhattan. They were prevented from doing so because of threats of intimidation and violence by uh, the entrenched establishment that ruled the Irish waterfront over there. That turned out to be a tremendous, fortuitous blessing for the filmmakers. The West Side in those days was visually very, very uninspiring. Hoboken was and is incredibly inspiring. It's on a bluff it has tremendous kind of topographical features. It has these enormous churches with big parks in front of the churches, like um, 
Our Lady of Grace on Church Square Park at 4th and Willow Streets, which gives a beautiful visual tableau of what a kind of a waterfront ethnic village would have looked like in the early 1950s. You don't get that visual riches on the west side of Manhattan. And the thing is, I can say this being from New Jersey, none of the filmmakers and none of the people involved in the film have the slightest idea what Hoboken was about. It was a dingy, scary waterfront town. Nobody ever went there without good business being there. And so Hoboken was a miracle. The two things that make this movie the great movie it is was three things. Hoboken itself, the inspiration of the Jesuit labor priest, Father Corridan, and of course his incredible incandescent performance by Marlon Brando. Although I also want to add now the fourth, uh, Bud Schulberg's script is magnificent. And then Ely Kazan's direction, um, unbelievably dogged and persistent in the face of lots of obstacles. They shot this film in 35 days in freezing cold temperatures. They had mob dock workers uh, swearing in the background, throwing things at them, trying to prevent them from making the film. They basically made the film as though they were making a documentary, trying to illustrate the challenges faced by dock workers. And you can see it in the film. It gives it incredible immediacy because at the same time they're making the film, the elections that are going on, these two elections in which dock workers across the port are being asked to choose between their old union and a new one. And this election campaign is going on. And everybody involved in the film, of course, is involved on the side of the new union. And a lot of people in Hoboken are involved on the side of the old union. And so it became this amazing kind of violent, scrappy kind of uh, struggle in which the film in some ways is an extremely elaborate campaign film on behalf of uh, the cause of a new union, which in fact lost on two separate occasions. And a lot of the extras or most of the extras in the film are also real dock workers. The extras are almost entirely real dock workers, including many with speaking parts. Uh, and the most notable, he wasn't an extra, he was a major figure in the film, a young kid named Tommy Hanley. Unbelievable story. A 13-year-old kid who lived on Hudson Street. He lived in one of the tenements. Uh, he lived in the tenement building, in fact, on which the rooftop pigeon scenes were being filmed. They needed a kid to play Marlon Brando's sidekick as a golden warrior. And so they saw this 13-year-old kid, and they said, uh, you want to be in the movie? And he said, I don't know. And so they took him across the river to the actor's studio where Kazan ran it, and they auditioned this kid. And he basically said to him, um, we know your father got killed. He was a, he was a, he was a dock worker. Uh, he was a rat, wasn't he? And the kid went crazy, started throwing things and going nuts. And then they said, perfect. We want a kid who's going to go crazy. Uh, a, a total, a kid who'd never been in the film in his life ends up playing this really important part and then spends the rest of his life working on the docks himself as a longshoreman and 50 years later becomes a leader of a kind of an insurgent rebel movement within the ILA, kind of in the spirit of Father Cord. And that is being in this film completely changed this man's life. Now, this might seem like a foolish question, but it's something that the movie is dependent on. Why was the waterfront such a dramatic place? I do think there's something uniquely in the Irish-American experience uh, about waterfronts, about maritime villages, about seafaring. And, of course, it becomes to be shared by Italian-Americans and many others, too. But the Irish in particular have a kind of proprietary and really almost a kind of a mystical devotion to it. And Austin Tobin, the man who uh, so-called lost his faith as a student at the Jesuits Holy Cross College, he, ta he had a mystical devotion to the Port of New York and New Jersey and really felt this deep, deep spiritual commitment to kind of making it 
whole and that making it a real coordinated place and making it a safer place and a better place. And Father Corden had the same thing. These are really tough men. Uh, they're not big talkers. They're doers. And they're not very sentimental and they're not very explicitly emotional. But they got very, very emotional about the Port of New York and New Jersey. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late senator from the state of New York, he wrote an essay uh, in the book Beyond the Melting Pot. He wrote an essay about the New York Irish, and he talks a lot about the port. And he says the Irish, that's where they stake their claim. And he said it's really dispiriting what they did. They created a kind of a coalition of business and religious and political interests, which was singularly depressing. And he said, it's as though I think there was a desire by the 1950s for the Irish that were left. They wanted to redeem the soul of the port. And that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to create a better legacy, really, as the way as the port was being turned over, you know, and it was no longer going to be the port as we knew it. There was a desire for the to to rescue the soul of the port, almost on behalf of the immigrant generation who had suffered, and so many had died. It's amazing how many longshoremen grew up without fathers. It's an it's a really enormous pattern that recurs, which I think is a very emotional one in a world in which people are taught not to be emotional and not to show those feelings. And I think that the battle over the port was in part a battle to redeem its soul. And I think that people, they really sacrifice themselves. John Corden gives up his, basically gives up his career over this because he's so controversial he's going to get thrown off the waterfront finally. And a lot of people really sacrifice enormously over this campaign. And so it's, yes, it's a very, very emotional issue. I found it very emotional writing about it in terms of Irish Catholic history in this region. And I was struck that no one had ever told the story before because a lot of it involves a story of Irish people destroying each other over for, uh, for a cause. One last question. Why is this film something that we should care about today more than 50 years after it was made? The, the answer to that question is that people just care about it, and that's the beauty of it. I don't, we don't have to manufacture. You can't, you can't manufacture interest in something like this. People have a genuine interest, which amazes me when I go out and talk, whether it's a memory or whether it's having a relative or just the power of the film itself. And Brando certainly invented, I think, modern acting in this film. People care about it. Um, I do think the story of the redemption issue is very significant. I mean, look, the great Martin Scorsese – this is the story of his artistic career. It really begins with Waterfront. If you remember in um, Raging Bull, the final scene, there's Jake LaMotta, Robert De Niro. He's in his dressing room. He's in a nightclub, and he's trying to rehearse the I could have been a contender scene. He's re- he's using Bud Schulberg's lines to basically outline his own quest for redemption, and that's really what it is. It's a redemption story. A lot of people can relate to that. But also, though, it is a beautiful story of his locations about the port and about the piers and about the beautiful river, you know, the Hudson and the Upper Harbor and and just the beautiful tableau, you know, that we have here before us, the magnificent New York Harbor, which is really unparalleled, I think, in the world for its beauty. And I think that it creates a kind of a mystique and a devotion among so many of us. Well, Jim Fisher is a professor of theology at Fordham, and his forthcoming book is The Irish Waterfront and the Soul of the Port from Cornell University Press. Jim, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. Remember that night in the garden? You came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. 
We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which is also on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.